0: Welcome to Listen Up People, a podcast of the USC Suzanne Dvorak. School of Social Work. I'm Dr. John Brecky, the Francis G. Larson Professor of Social Work Research. I'm very excited about the two individuals who are joining me on the show today as we take a deep dive into the escalating problem of suicide. First, my colleague, Dr. Eric Rice, Associate Professor, is also the founder and co-director of the USA Center for Artificial Intelligence in Society which is a joint venture of the USC Suzanne Dvorak Peck School of Social Work and the USC Viterbi School of Engineering. He's going to share with us some of the research being done around using artificial intelligence to predict and prevent suicide among homeless youth and active duty army personnel. And also joining us is Lynn Morris, a licensed marriage and family therapist. She is the Senior Vice President of Clinical Operations at Dee Hirsch Mental Health Services and a nationally recognized specialist on suicide assessment and intervention. She's also a certified trainer in applied suicide intervention skills training and Safe Talk, which both apply best practices in suicide prevention. Prior to starting this podcast, we started talking about how each of us has been touched personally by suicide. For me, it was two men who were very important to me as I was growing up, one in childhood and one as an adolescent, who both, uh, due to a variety of circumstances, uh, ended up committing suicide. And to this day, I think about them and what I would like to have shared with them throughout my life. Absolutely. I think there are many
1: reasons why a person gets involved in all sorts of different clinical and research work, right? But personal experience is oftentimes one of the things that drives you. In my case, it was losing my father to suicide when I was a teenager and then losing a friend and a a cousin as well uh, later in life. And so it's something that has been in my background for a long time and certainly drew me to want to do some work in this area.
2: And for me, I lost a very close friend to suicide. And this was after I was licensed, and it really hit me hard because I realized how much we get trained in as therapists in graduate school, but not enough in suicide assessment and intervention. So I had a lot of guilt after my friend died by suicide, feeling I should have known, I should have seen it. Also had a cousin die by suicide. My husband's had a cousin and his family die by suicide. So this is what drives us. And many of our volunteers on the D.D. Hirsch suicide crisis line have experience with suicide, either their own or a family member, friend, or loved one that they lost. And it's what drives them and what gives them passion to do this work.
1: And it's interesting is it's still such a stigmatized issue, right? Mm-hmm. And so people don't want to talk about this, and yet when you Open up with somebody about yeah. this experience. Chances are the person sitting across from you also has been touched in this way it's, it's really far more prevalent than we think.
2: It doesn't discriminate. It affects us all and that's why it's such an important issue to talk about.
0: And recently, of course, we've seen a number of very high-profile individuals who have taken their lives. And I suspect most people have said things like, gee, what could be wrong when you're as big a, a figure as that? What what could be going wrong? But is the incidence of suicide increasing? Are we seeing more suicide among different groups? Can you address that, Lynn? It
2: is increasing. Um, the CDC just recently came out with a report um, talking about the fact that the rate of suicide has gone up almost 30% since 1990 it's a public health issue it is increasing in California alone since 2001 the suicide rate has gone up 50% it's an issue that we're starting to talk more about and starting to let people know that there are resources that can really help but high-profile suicides of course bring up the topic a little bit more on our crisis line when Anthony Bourdain died and Kate Spade died our volume doubled for A few days after that and people were calling saying well why them and what do i have to live for if they had it all and it really brings up the piece about suicide prevention to educate people to let them know it's not about what you have it's about how you're feeling it's about depression it's about mental health issues it's about other issues relationship issues economic issues that people are facing suicide is extremely complex it's not one thing that causes someone to die by suicide And we we at the crisis line like to use the term died by suicide instead of using the word committed because committed often makes people think of it as something negative, right? You're committed to a hospital. You're committing a crime, you know, bad things. So we try to phrase it in a way that makes it a little less stigmatizing so that people are willing to talk about it more.
0: So the incidence rate is going up, and I think you said earlier that it's the second leading cause of death among –
2: 10 to 24-year-olds. And that just changed in recent years. It used to be the third leading cause of death, but it has crept up. And in adolescents in particular, it's a high-stress time. And adolescents are facing adult-type issues, more pressures, but they lack the coping skills and they lack the cognitive abilities to sometimes handle really tough situations. So the important piece of that is to always reach out, to always reach out to somebody to talk. We have a 24-hour crisis line that, helps people to do that in a safe place, that they're able to discuss what's going on. It's very common that teens will bring up issues, and people often will say, oh, you have everything to live for, and oh, don't worry about that, tomorrow will be a better day. And they try to say something positive, which is a nice gesture, but it doesn't help. What helps somebody is to really say, wow, you sound like you are in so much pain, let's talk. Non-judgmental voice, listen to the pain. You have to go to the deep, dark place to understand what would cause somebody to be in such pain that they would think of killing themselves? You have to understand that to be able to get them to start thinking about life again.
0: You're touching on a topic that probably many people are worry about. I, I suspect a lot of people are wondering, well, how do I really recognize this? Someone may not walk up to you and say, you know, I'm so down, I'm thinking of, yeah. of ending my life.
2: So 80% of people who die by suicide will give some warning sign or indication that they are in suicidal distress. However it's not uncommon that people miss them. So whereas a person who's feeling suicidal feels like they're talking about it and trying to reach out for help, it's vague sometimes or not as direct and so people don't catch on and they feel even more hopeless that people aren't understanding where they're at. So signs to look for in people, certainly people talking about suicide, threatening suicide, researching online ways to kill themselves Also, changes in mood, so that can be somebody who used to be involved in a lot of activities or performing well at work and now all of a sudden they're isolating more, experiencing more depression. It can be also people expressing thoughts that they don't feel like they have a purpose in life. So people may say statements like, you know, nobody will care if I'm here tomorrow anyway. What's the point? you know, I'm just a problem to my family, they've heard this all before. Those can be suicidal statements and certainly should be addressed in asking directly if somebody's feeling suicidal. There's other things too, you know, people who are engaging in risky behavior, so that can include substance use, that can be increased sexual activity that is dangerous, driving recklessly, you know, things of that nature can also be warning signs. People often like to figure out ways to say goodbye. So if you feel like all of a sudden a friend, a loved one comes up to you and says, I just want to thank you for always being there for me. And I know you tried your hardest and I just wanted to tell you I love you and thank you. That just might be somebody who's appreciative. But if you know this person has been depressed, you know they've been going through a lot, it doesn't hurt to ask, you know, thank you. I really appreciate the nice... Feedback, but I know what you've been going through, and that almost sounds like you're saying goodbye to me. Are you feeling suicidal? And to really just address it head on. Sometimes people give away things that are important to them, you know, different possessions, and it doesn't have to be of value. It's what it means to the person. It could be a picture. It could be an article of clothing. It doesn't have to be anything big, but it's something that meant something to them.
0: And if if someone is uncomfortable saying, are you thinking of ending your life? Just asking them to talk about their pain may allow them
2: absolutely to express that. Absolutely. It opens so the door for a conversation. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So you're suggesting that people open that door for a conversation. Yes. Even if it's not about suicide, it can be about their feelings of what they're going through in their lives.
2: Absolutely. You know, oftentimes people want to talk about it. We have over 100,000 people calling our crisis line, so people need to talk about it. They oftentimes don't have someone in their life who can listen in the way that they feel heard. Mm -hmm. So it's absolutely important to bring the conversation up and, and to talk to people.
0: Okay. So before we turn a little bit more to what to do, Eric, your work has been on predictors of suicide yeah. among these two these really risky, populations, this risky yeah. populations, homeless youth and active duty military. What are you learning? Well, it's, it's really
1: interesting. I mean, in some populations, suicide is even more of a prevalent problem than it is in, in others, and certainly homeless youth and folks who are involved with the military are two groups that there's a lot of uh, issues. And what we're really interested in trying to understand is actually something that Lynn was touching on, which is, this idea about disconnection, right? So we're really interested in how people's social networks as well as their mental health states are impacting their suicidal thinking potentially. So we've been playing around with uh, some artificial intelligence techniques that are called machine learning. And we've been doing something in particular called a decision tree analysis. And one of the things that's really interesting about this kind of work is that it allows you to look at the confluence of factors that add up to suicidal thinking. So I think one of the th- one of the problems that we've had in the past in research on predicting suicide is that if you use the usual sort of statistical techniques, you can say something like, well, people who have depression are more likely to commit suicide or more likely to die by suicide. But there's a lot of people out there who are depressed who don't. When you look at some of these artificial intelligence algorithms and the sorts of results that they pull out, what you find out is interesting things like if you are depressed as a homeless youth and you've experienced trauma then you are at extremely high risk for suicide but if you are depressed and you haven't experienced trauma then you're not necessarily at a really high risk for suicide so there's a way in which trauma and depression interact with one another in this interesting way and what turns out to be the case is that there's actually this narrow band where if you're depressed but you're not too depressed and you haven't suffered from trauma you're probably gonna be okay. But if you haven't suffered from trauma and you're very, very, very depressed, like high levels of depression, all of a sudden you're at really high risk again. So what we found in this was that depression was one of the most important predictors of suicidal thinking. But the suicide attempts, when you looked at this group of about 25% of these young people who were experiencing high rates of depression, it really broke out into these three different groups. And I think what we're hoping is that practitioners who are working with homeless youth You know, they're aware that trauma is something they need to think about. They're aware that depression is something they need to think about. But I think these sorts of tools could help people to start thinking about the compounding effects that these things have. And the other piece that we're hoping for is that if we can do this preliminary work well, we might even be able to build out software that's assessment tools for for risk for suicide. So it's sometimes difficult to engage people like homeless youth who are very distrusting of adults in terms of having an initial conversation when you first meet them about, hey, are you feeling like you might want to end your life? It's it's a sort of conversation that you only have with people when you really start to trust them. And yet there's, for a case manager who's just meeting a new youth on the streets, they really want to be able to do some good outreach work for them as soon as they can. And so what we're hoping is that if we can come up with ways of identifying folks who are at high risk for suicidal thinking and suicide attempts, that... We might be able to reach out to them using tools that don't necessarily directly ask them about suicidal thinking, but ask them about a, a variety of other mental health and health issues and network engagement. Because, Like you were suggesting, mm-hmm. one of the other things we found, not surprisingly, is that as people withdraw from their positive networks, they're at higher and higher risk for having suicide attempts. And So there's this really interesting finding, and this is the last little nerdy detail that I'll get into, but there's this one pathway that really seems to be like, the you're going to be fine if you're a homeless youth that is experiencing these things so low rates of depression you you started your homelessness experience after the age of 18 for the first time you stay away from violence okay so we're going down the tree right Mm -hmm. and at the 11th hour how you're engaging with friends makes all the difference about whether or not you're going to be at high risk for suicide Mm -hmm. or not so even if you've had all of these good things going on but you have no connections to anyone outside of the streets so all of your connections are to other people on the streets. No one from home is in your life. You go from having an 11% chance of, of, of having a suicide attempt in the last year to a two, two-thirds or 67% chance. So it just flips the way you're engaging with those networks. And that's, I think, a profound thing to be thinking about. It's not just the sorts of mental health issues that we carry around, but it's how we continue to engage with people in the world that's so much a part of this. And, and it's very complicated. You know, Like I said, it's like this chain. You're okay, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay, now you're not.
0: So, Eric, it sounds like y- your work is trying to give kind of an Im- empirical weighting to these signs so that they can become a, a signal that, that something should be done. So yeah, Lynn has clinicians that check through these things mm-hmm. probably mentally. Your work is trying to take that and put it into a a software program that could assist people in making these decisions about what do we do now. Yeah, and I I think in some ways what we're thinking about is how can
1: we try to peel back some of the stigma and really be able to see people and the pain that they're in when they're maybe uncomfortable about actually sharing that pain. And I know it sounds crazy to be talking about artificial intelligence and computer programs when it's such a human process to connect, but... I think that we can use both, and it's certainly not a replacement for the sort of work that a clinician would do by any stretch.
2: No, and I think technology, we have to look at other ways to help people who are feeling suicidal, and technology is one of them. Um, You know, we have long had our suicide crisis line for over 50 years, and we introduced chat services several years ago, and there was some initial kind of, oh, are we going to be able to really connect with people and have that rapport and hear the pain, and It's amazing that we found that not only did our crisis line call volume continue to go up, but our chat volume went up in accordance because it was different people who were chatting. It was people who would not pick up the telephone to get help. Either they prefer the anonymity of a chat or they didn't have the environment to be able to pick up a phone and talk freely and openly about how they were feeling. They may be in their home. We've had chatters sitting next to their parents, telling us that they're feeling suicidal, chatting with us, and their parents don't know. They just think they're on their phone, you know, playing.
0: So these technological advances could be solutions to both prediction as well as intervention,
2: mm-hmm.
0: in different ways. One of the issues that we're
1: really interested in in looking at folks in the in the army, or in, and eventually we'd like this to extend to veterans as well, is that when you're in a setting where talking about mental health is not only stigmatized but can potentially be detrimental to your career Mm -hmm. coming up with more subtle ways of understanding who might be at risk so that you can reach out to them proactively becomes really important so this project that we're just getting off the ground really it's going to be working with uh, a unit that's going to be deployed and we will interview them before they leave for their deployment and then we're going to interview them once a month for six months after they come back, and we're hoping to really understand their network engagement, their mental health status, and to try to use these as indicators. Because for this group, there are services which the military really wants to make available to folks, but folks are really uncomfortable about saying that they have a mental health issue or that they're in a suicidal crisis because they're afraid that it's going to go on their record and that it's going to impact their promotions. And that it's going to be known by their higher-ups, and there's a lot of fears around this. And so the ability to intervene before it's a crisis so that it doesn't have to be labeled as such Mm -hmm. seems like a really powerful thing. And we know from some of the work that's been done on the suicide rates in active-duty service members is that, it tends to be in these points of transition that people really have problems. When you first join the service, you are at a really high risk for suicide because you're actually in a new social setting and you're mm. disconnected from your old networks. When you come back from deployment, you also are at a higher risk because you're changing your setting and a lot of the and a lot of the units get broken up, or at least parts of them get broken up after they come back. So the supports that have gotten you through being deployed suddenly are no longer available to you and certainly this is the case for veterans because they're really disconnected from this network. It's all about trying to reach out through the veil of all of this stigma.
0: The issue of stigma has come up a, a number of times in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Stigma about mental illness is enormous. I suspect the stigma about mental illness is dramatically compounded when you add suicide to that.
2: It is and for a lot of factors that Eric has is mentioned where... You have somebody who's talking about their thoughts and emotions and feelings and people don't really understand it and don't know how much pain they're in. And so this person shuts down and doesn't talk about it, you know, as much anymore.
0: So if someone is experiencing thoughts of wanting to end their life, they might call a crisis line. Mm -hmm. You talk to them and then what happens?
2: First thing that we will say is what's going on. We just open the door We try to ask open-ended questions because it's really about finding out what's going on at that moment. Oftentimes people don't come out right away and say they're feeling suicidal. They tell you about the different stressors that are happening in their life and then you start to slowly build trust, build rapport with this person because as Eric mentioned earlier, that's really critical in getting someone to talk further and to then be willing to reach out for help. We go into the pain where we can ask that question You know are you thinking of killing yourself today and then certainly assess it further to determine how and when and and all of those things we talk to them and we not only talk to them about the part that wants to die but then we try to work on the part that wants to live eventually but you don't go there right away they have to feel heard they have to feel understood that builds the trust so that they're more willing to kind of go to that life side when it's appropriate and then at that point, we do try to link people to resources if they have them. And if they don't have them, make sure that they have other resources that they can obtain.
0: We were trying to begin a, a study of people with serious mental illness who were also suicidal. And we had a couple of mental health agencies say to us, we don't want to deal with it. It's a mm-hmm. big problem, but we don't want to deal with it. And Dee Hirsch is on the national forefront in terms of dealing with these services, and Eric... Are you linked with other research centers that are trying to tackle these issues as well?
1: I've been working in Los Angeles area with a bunch of uh, homeless youth providers for years. And so this work that I'm doing right now with homeless youth around suicide prevention, I mean, this is in collaboration with Safe Place for Youth and with My Friend's Place, which were two agencies that I've been working with for, gosh, I mean, one of them for 15 years, the other one for about eight years. I mean, these are longstanding relationships. And these are are places where there's really incredible caseworkers who do a lot of crisis management on a daily basis with these youth but also feel like there's not enough time in the day to be eyes on everyone who might need it and so trying to understand and and improve some techniques to just kind of get to the folks who need it the most, I think, is really part of what's motivating their interest in this work. And one of the things I was thinking while, while Lynn was talking was how much of this work is about treating other mental health issues. It's not really about treating suicide. I mean, suicide is an unfortunate outcome, but it's usually really deeply wrapped up in other mental health issues.
0: Let's say I have a friend and they've said a couple of things to me and Based on this podcast, I'm now aware of, wow, maybe I should pay attention to this. Mm -hmm. Can I call your agency and say, you know what? I don't really know what I'm doing, but I've got a friend who's saying this to me. What the heck do I do now?
2: Absolutely. I'm really glad you brought that up because our crisis line is not just for people who are feeling suicidal, it's also for people who are concerned about someone who's suicidal. And exactly as you mentioned, don't know what to do, but have that gut feeling. They want to help, don't know how. So absolutely, they can call our crisis line, and our counselors will listen to the story and help give some points or tips on maybe things to say or actions to take that could potentially be helpful.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a, a wonderful resource. Yes,
2: yeah, and it's the national su we're part of the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is one 273 talk, which is eight two five five.
0: So what I, what I really like about what you're saying that, that could be applicable to anyone is that if you have someone you're concerned about, start a conversation with them, and you don't even have to bring up the word suicide. You can just mm-hmm. say, gee, I've noticed some things that are different in your life. Can we talk?
2: Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. The pain is so unbearable at times for people who are feeling suicidal and things don't seem to be working or getting better. Suicide can seem like an option because it's the only way out. But I think that's the thing, oftentimes people don't want to die, it's just they want to end pain that they're in, mm-hmm. and they don't know any other way. And that's a really important interesting thing to say. Yeah,
1: because I mean, I think when people, I think one of the things that really ha- people suffered with around hearing about Anthony Bourdain is that here's this guy who's so vivacious. I mean, if you talk about lust for life, this is a man who has yeah. lust for life. Yeah. How could this guy who everybody wants to sit and have a beer and eat some weird food on some (laughs) tropical island with, be somebody who is going to die by suicide.
2: Right, and I think, you know, when they looked back on his life, because I remember in the very beginning when that first came out, there was lots of why him, and he had everything going for him. And then to find out that, no, he was suffering, and he talked about dying by suicide and by hanging in particular in several instances, but not in a direct way of saying I will do that. It was more jokes or more things that alluded to it that when you look back on it, of course hindsight's twenty twenty. when you look back on it, it made sense of the final outcome. He felt very alone and talked about that in one interview in particular. Did anybody in his life pick up on that and ask more? You know, Would that have made a difference? I don't know. In some cases it does, in some cases it might not. We can't save everybody, even though we'd love to, but it's important that we at least try and mm-hmm. pay attention to those signs.
0: I, I think your comment about people wanting to end pain is so powerful because we all experience pain, mm-hmm. varying degrees at varying times in our lives. And if we ourselves can say, I'm in pain, I need to reach out. This is this is one of the big messages that you both have been giving: is mm-hmm. connection and reaching out and engaging, either with friends or mental health professionals. Pain is a is a is a natural occurrence in life. It's when it gets overwhelming and people get hopeless that that's the critical point when they may start thinking about suicide or as a way out.
2: Creating a network of support around a person is really one of the most critical resources somebody who is Suicidal can have when I say that I don't just mean number of people or that they have fam- a big family or a lot of friends It has to be people who understand what they're going through and can deal with it themselves To be able to talk to those people because a lot of times people can have a lot of people around them But they really have no support
0: and they feel isolated and they yeah. feel
2: alone even though to the average person they would Maybe ignore that person and say, oh, they've got lots of support, they're okay. Somebody would see it if they were feeling this way, which not always the case.
1: And I think the other thing that that's worth mentioning is that not everyone wants to be engaged in therapy. Sometimes people don't want things that are that sound that treatment oriented. And so I think we were we were, we we're joking a little bit off offline about how in California, you know, people are happy to talk about their their meditation and their mindfulness and their yoga and these sorts of things because they those are sort of safe west coast hippie things to be engaged in but honestly there's a great evidence base for 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 yoga and mindfulness around dealing with depression and around dealing with trauma and so those are actually spaces and places where people can very much get some of the help that they need but again i think both lynn and i are talking about people who are in crisis needing a certain amount of people to reach out to them i think that sometimes we think that the onus of everything in our culture is on the individual you know it's this is your problem man you know and it's and i think that no i mean we're 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 a human family you know and, and we need to be looking out for one another and i think one of the lessons that i think we're both trying to share is just the importance of reaching out
0: so if you have a friend that you're worried about and they're in a lot of pain that could be really helpful to them If you were to say something like, you know, you're in a lot of pain, have you ever thought about just getting out of it?
2: Absolutely. And I think it's important to understand that do not ever keep it a secret that a friend is feeling suicidal. I'll tell you, but you have to keep it secret and you can't tell anyone. Try not to make that promise to somebody because the ultimate thing is that we want to make sure people are getting connected to other people Mm -hmm. and talking to others. Having more support for someone who is suicidal is good clinical care. So, we don't want to keep things secret. Because it's also what if the person does die by suicide and you kept it a secret? That's a heavy load to carry for the rest of your life. Instead of, okay, my friend or family member is going to be pissed off at me for a while, but they're still alive and now they're getting help.
1: It's so great the school decided to do a podcast on this issue because mm-hmm. I think that one of the things we need to do more than anything else is to just continue to talk about yes. mental health yes. and well being and suicide, and the notion that because people can die by suicide, people also can die by mental health-related issues, because this is, mm-hmm. you know, essentially the, the terminal version of a mental health problem for a lot of people. And, and I think I've had some family members that have talked to me about some of the suicides in my own in my own family and sort mm-hmm. of started to re- reframe it as, you know, people talk about people having diseases that they die of, but people don't talk about the fact that people can die from untreated clinical depression or untreated bipolar disorder, okay. even though that's what happened in my own family. And And I think that there's a, a, a need for us to just embrace the fact that humans have these issues at times and that it's nothing to be ashamed of,
0: but we've had such a cultural stigma against it for so long. Mm -hmm. And it's wonderful that as a society, we're talking more about mental illness, Mm -hmm. but we're at a stage where we haven't done enough about the stigma. I mean, you can say, I have diabetes, and now people will just say, well, there's some lifestyle changes you can make. If you say to someone, I'm mentally ill, there's an entirely different reaction, and that has to be internalized by people who Mm -hmm. call a hotline.
2: Well, I mean, people can have situational stressors for a period of time that could create suicidal thoughts so if somebody was just diagnosed with a medical condition nothing else was happening in their life and at that point sure they could be thinking of long-term consequences and what their life might look like and start to have suicidal thoughts does that mean they're mentally ill no that's a normal response in that type of situation but oftentimes people do have mental health issues when they're thinking of suicide. So you know, roughly 90% of people who died by suicide had a diagnosable mental health issue at the time. So it's definitely something we have to address better in our society. And I think that by sharing stories of hope and recovery, It shows people you can live with mental illness, you can be a productive member of society. The person sitting next to you may have a mental illness and you don't even know, but they're a successful human being and they can function. We have to do a better job of sharing our stories and making sure that people see the positive.
0: I want to thank Lynn and Eric for being here today. This is a topic that's deeply personal for many people, and it's wonderful to hear that we have ways that people can get help and that we have people generating new knowledge that can help us reach out and understand suicide, which in some ways is imponderable for most of us. If you would like to talk about someone that you're concerned about or if you're concerned about feelings that you're having, thoughts that you're having, you can call the Didi Hurst Suicide Prevention Line at 1-800-273-8255. Once again, that's 1-800-273-8255, and that's a line that's open 24-7. If you have questions for the guests on our show or just want to talk further about the issue of suicide and prevention, we'd love to hear from you at usc.edu. You can also find extended versions of this and all of our episodes at dvorakpeck.usc.edu. Forward slash listen up, and that's spelled D W O R A K P E C K dot USC dot edu, forward slash listen up. Thank you very much.